we're looking, we looked last week um, about the idea of being lost. I suppose the outcome of that, that the consequence of being lost, is what we're looking at today. Jesus is speaking about the consequences of life, of lostness, of foundness, if there is such a word, of the idea of heaven and hell, of blessing and judgment, all of those kind of contrasts. That's what's been building up over time. He's been describing to the uh, people who were listening, both, both those who were with him and those who were opposed to him, uh, this whole idea of what does it really mean to be found? What does it really mean, we come now on to, what are the real consequences of that lostness, heaven and hell, blessings and judgments? Uh, we live in a, a kind of cultural context which really holds on to the idea that there is something more than, uh, more than now. Um, when I was a, a young kid, uh, if you listen to me sing now, this will shock you. When I was in junior school, I was in the choir. That's an amazing kind of contrast. Uh, I might have been able to sing at one time and then, you know, kind of voice broke and then that was just all downhill from there. But I remember it's really great uh, in the build-up to Christmas because you got out of lessons on a Friday afternoon and you went with the headmaster who led the choir and it, you got to um, prepare for the Christmas concert. Um, but every Christmas, to begin the, uh, the choir uh, practice, he would read us another chapter out of A Christmas Carol. Uh, now, it's really interesting. How many of you know A Christmas Carol from the original? And how many, when I say A Christmas Carol, the first thing that comes to mind is the Muppets? Uh, yeah, there's, yeah, okay, that's a generational kind of shift. Uh, so we've got the Muppets just springs to mind when we think of Christmas Carol. But as a kid, I remember being terrified at the idea of Jacob Marley. Jacob Marley, the ghost of Jacob Marley, kind of held in chains, rattling chains behind him, trying to warn Scrooge about the idea of holding on to his money. And the idea of that used to really frighten me. The Muppets was a great antidote later in life to the fear that was instilled in me by my headmaster with Jacob Marley. But there's something in that. There's something in it in that culturally, again and again, repeatedly, as people... We want to think about the idea that there is something more, something that there are implications in this life which carry on into our eternal life. There is some connection. It's very interesting that we live in that. Right the way through to, you've heard me quote it so many times, one of the best movies ever made, Gladiator, what does he say as they're just about to go into battle to kind of cheer on his, his uh, army? He says, what we do in life echoes in eternity. He wasn't coming from a Christian perspective, but it's a very interesting thought that it repeatedly comes back to us again and again. And so we have this story that Jesus tells. It's a very simple narrative, very... Uh, understandable narrative, yet it's filled with all sorts of very interesting thoughts. At first glance, 
I, I would say this could almost be a party political broadcast on behalf of the Labour Party. Not sure what that actually means at the moment, so we'll say it could be a party political broadcast on behalf of the Jeremy Corbyn Party. The idea that there is massive social injustice and it needs to be righted. Now, that is absolutely true. Very clear that we live in a world which is unjust, that there is wrong going on repeatedly. And there is a challenge to that. But that isn't the main purpose of this story. So we'll park that idea that, yes, that is very important. The Bible talks about the, the requirement, actually, for, for Christian faith and the church to really be at the forefront of representing a desire for social justice. But that isn't really what this story is all about. It's very simple. There's a rich man. He's dressed in purple, fine linen, lived in a luxury every day. And then there's a beggar at his gates called Lazarus. The way he's described, you couldn't get a more distant perspective. Lazarus is in the pits. And Jesus describes the rich man very specifically as wearing purple. Purple was something which was significant in that day. We read later on in the book of Acts about Lydia, who was a seller of purple. Luke uses that idea twice in describing somebody in terms of their social position. Purple was uh, established as a fabric which uh, was very valuable to wear. So he's really pushing the idea. The other interesting thing is this is the only story that Jesus tells, the only parable that Jesus tells, where there is somebody identified by name. Uh, and that has raised all sorts of ideas. Is this a parable? Is it really uh, a true event? Let me, let me just say this to you. Lazarus means God is my help. That's what the name Lazarus means. Now, if we just park that in our brains as we unfold this story, I think what we're going to see is this is just like all of Jesus' other parables, but what he is doing is he's using the name of Lazarus to identify the status and the, the attitude and the heart of, of this man in the story. Rather than trying to describe, oh, and by the way, he was a believer in God, and da 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 just gives him a name. Names were really significant in the, Old in the time of Jesus, the Old Testament and early New Testament days. Names were significant. They meant something. And so Jesus gives him a name which means something. So we could almost read this story as saying, at his gate was uh, uh, laid a beggar uh, who believed that God is his help. We could read it in that way. It's a way of describing the status of this person. They both die. The beggar is carried to Abraham's side, and the rich man is buried, and in Hades. He's in torment. There is a distance between the two. He sees Lazarus with Abraham, and uh, he desires that there might be some relief sent from that place to the place where he is by cool water being dipped 
on, uh, dripped onto his tongue. It's just imagine um, what Jesus is doing is describing in pictorial terms, in words, the sheer uh, horror uh, of this situation where just a little drip of water is enough to bring relief. That, that's the picture that's being painted. Uh, and then the response is, no. And so the response then back is to say, well, if you won't give me relief, then go and tell my brothers. And the response is, they've got opportunities to hear. That is such a simple story really, isn't it? I, I just, we could spend lots and lots of time talking about this. Rather than digging into all the intricate little details of this story and trying to stretch it so that we understand bits about heaven and hell and all of that kind of thing. I just want us to identify some really simple, straightforward things that Jesus is saying. The first thing He says is this, verse 22, straightforward, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades. The first really straightforward thing to say is this. This life is not everything. That's the most straightforward thing that we can read out of that, isn't it? Without kind of digging into all the detail, let's just recognize the great big elephant in the room which is saying this life is not everything. It feeds back into our Christmas carol, Gladiator, every other idea that we have in many of our writings. It's just ridden through in Shakespeare. Let me, I just, you know, I'm not a, I am not a literary type person. I'm really not. But I, I got, bought a book, literally all of Shakespeare's works in a book that's that big. And it's just two pages for every one of his plays, key characters, story outline. That is my kind of Shakespeare. That is just so cool. Uh, having said that, when you flick through it, how often is the next life featuring in, in Shakespeare's works? Isn't it fascinating? Right the way through human experience, we kind of deep down know that this is not everything. We live in fascinating days. If we had lived a couple of hundred years ago, the whole of our culture would have understood this is not everything. There is an eternal dimension. Pretty much everybody believed that there was something more. Over time, what we've done is we've moved to uh, a new perspective, a new idea which wants to encourage us that all we are is a collection of matter which at the point where we die ends up in the ground and just we, we as people, we as identities, as unique identities, we just, we are no longer. That, that's what we are now wanting to believe on the one hand. Huge debates about what we teach kids in school. 
And yet, on the other hand, again and again, our culture is saying to us, but this isn't everything. We want the more. We want the eternal dimension. We want to see something more. Jesus is saying, your inner thought, your inner intuitive belief that this is not everything is absolutely true. There is something more than just this life. That's really interesting, isn't it? And secondly, what he is saying is that our life is not, our eternal life is not disconnected from this life. <laughs> there is a continuity between the two. It's, we, we often want to think that somehow it almost doesn't matter what goes on in this life because the next life is almost a new start. It's all, we kind of almost fall into some sort of idealistic reincarnation kind of idea where we become this whole new person with a whole new start. And yet what Jesus is saying is your intuition is right, what you, are fe- what you know and you think deep down inside that there is more than just this life is absolutely true and there is a continuity of the two. They are not disconnected that they relate to each other. It's almost as though if you were in the first century, and this is something that Paul did very often, he used the, he used the poets, he used the, uh, the uh, popular cultural ideas of the day to help him to communicate the message of the Bible. He would almost say this, don't you remember what Maximus says in the battle? What we do in life echoes in eternity that even your prophets are saying that, even your poets rather are saying that, he would say. He'd say, you know, there's something in what we think as human beings. First point, first big idea out of this story, this life is not everything. The second is this, we seriously need to question what we believe blessing to be. We need to question what we believe blessing to be. We live in, we, we, actually, you know, you, you will, if, you were here, if you've been here for f- more than four years, you will know that I am buzzing at the moment. The Olympics has started. I, I am just, you know, my, my lads have it every year when the footy season starts again. Yeah, it's okay, but when the Olympics starts every four years, I'm buzzing. What's more, first week, track cycling. Wow. It's great. But what I find really interesting, particularly, I guess, from certain teams, the amount of time when the word blessed appears. I'm so blessed. We're blessed. We're blessed because we're here we're blessed because I've got a gold medal. We're blessed, we're blessed, we're blessed, we're blessed, we're blessed. There's all sorts of ideas of blessed. U.S. team is great at using the word blessed. You know, if you, were, if you took yourself back to the first century when Jesus told this story, everybody would have said, he's blessed. That guy in the purple with that great house, because the cultural norm of the day 
is that riches were a mark of God's blessing. Now, let me suggest to you that much of our talk, and I want to direct us particularly, those of us who want to think about aspects of Christian faith and different perspectives of Christian faith, I really want to challenge us on this. We can fall perilously close towards saying the same thing today. That the idea that some sort of idea that riches is a distinct mark of God's blessing, and yet Jesus makes it very clear in this story that the guy who appears to be blessed is actually not eternally blessed by God. That's powerful, isn't it? We have got to face up to this in this story, in the way that Jesus is helping those who are listening to this story click on to what He's actually teaching. And therefore, what Luke is saying to Theophilus, who he's writing his, his book to, he's saying, I want you to be really clear that you make sure that you don't fall into the trap of thinking that material possession is a mark of God's blessing, because this guy says that it isn't. I am not saying that God might not bless us in remarkable ways in remarkable material ways. That, that is entirely in God's providence and in His hand to do that, absolutely. What I am saying is there is not a direct connection between the two. The rich man, it eternally turns out, is not blessed by God. And yet the one who looks in cultural terms, he wouldn't have been helped. Now, that's really important to think through. The idea that this rich man, who literally walks out of his gate every day, well, maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe he was pulled out in a coach or one of those, th- I can't remember what the thing, they carried, you know, seat on the two people carrying it, you know. He would have passed Lazarus every day, and the rich man, like everybody else, would have looked at Lazarus in the gutter, unfed, desperate to eat the the bits of food that fall off the table of the rich man, desperate even to eat that. Why is he not helped? Because culturally, people would have looked at him and said, he is cursed by God. He's cursed by God, and therefore, don't get close to Him. The problem is that Jesus gives him a name, which is Lazarus. What He's saying is that this man who looks as though he's cursed by God, actually deep down, deep inside, as part of his being, He lives by the belief that God is my help. Isn't that fascinating? A guy who actually probably looks at the idea of this rich man who walks out of his door every day and he just thinks, if he could just do a little bit of something, he's my help. He has every possibility of putting his trust in people in this world every possibility of putting his trust in something that's going on around him in the immediacy of that moment. 
And yet Jesus says what's running through him, it's a deep-seated belief, God is my help. You say, well, that's really interesting. What does it do today? What it does today is it allows those who have deep down written into them part of their very being, a deep-seated belief, God is my help, God is my help, I believe that no matter what is going on in my life, no matter what is happening. It doesn't mean that therefore I can just, you know, sort of kick back and not not worry if it's really tragic and sort of batten down the hatches until heaven comes. It means that no matter how bad life is, no matter what the issues that we face, there is always a deeper reality. God is my help. God is my help. That is way more important than being able to say blessed. It's almost as though if you spoke to these two, if you had that kind of five minutes conversation and and you said, you know, how are things? It's almost as though you would probably find that the rich man would be stressed about the fact that the investment that he made last week isn't quite performing as well as it should be. And he's wondering about the, uh, the money that he's got in the bank, and he's worried about the money that he's got stashed in the storeroom down the road, and he's worried about what to do with that money so that it makes more money. And if you spoke to Lazarus, he would say, I'm really struggling, but I know deep down that God is my help. That's what Jesus is trying to convey by giving him a name. That's why the name is so, so important to this. It's so important. It's absolutely crucial to the way that the parable works. It's saying that this man isn't blessed. This man called Lazarus, he's not blessed because he suffered there, therefore he gets good things over there. He's blessed because he trusted in God. We need to question what we see blessing as as being. The rich man, equally, he's not in a terrible place, banished from God, because he's been rich. He's been banished from God because that was his security, and that was what was driving his hope. In other words, Jesus is encouraging through this story for us to look deep inside, to see where am I, who am I? And therefore, there are some warnings that spring out of this. The first warning is this. Let's let's read it. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Believe me, it is not, honestly, it is not easy to talk about these kind of aspects of Jesus' teaching. But I think what he's saying is this. Think about what this rich man personifies. 
How did he live his life? He lived his life in singular self-centeredness. He lived his life with him at the center. Everything was to do with him. He was not just his hope. He was his savior. He was his joy. He was the reason he got up in the morning. He was the ideas for the future. He was at the center. And therefore, the eternal trajectory of that kind of life is the continuation of him at the center. That is what Hades, hell, eternal loss, all of those ways that the Bible describes our eternal destiny without God. That's what it is. It's God saying, you have chosen to not have me at the center. You have chosen to have you at the center. I will respect that decision, and you will have you at the center for all of eternity. But what you will not have anymore is any of my blessing. Now, let me make it, this is my conviction, God does not have to actively punish anybody in eternity. The absence of God is sufficient punishment in itself. Nothing of God is eternal hell. And God says, if that is how you want to live now, then that is how you will live eternally. Every now, every time, now and then we get a kind of glimpse into a packed, self-centered celebrity life. I think um, uh, Taylor Swift and um, Beyonce, not Beyonce, the other one, I can't remember a name. That's pretty good that I don't, I only know one name. That, that's kind of good. Um, Kardashian, yeah? Card, Kim Kardashian. They're on a bit of a kind of trip at the moment, aren't they? They're, they're kind of at loggerheads, Twitter all over the place. Here's the thing. That is the beginnings of absolute self-obsession. It's only the beginnings. It does not produce happiness. It produces eternal torment, absolute self-centeredness. It produces eternal torment. And that's why the picture that Jesus paints is that a little tiny drop of, of compassion from outside of me, a little kind of drop of water on my tongue, is some compassion from outside of me will be a relief because I'm so totally obsessed with me. It's warning one. Second warning is, well, it's kind of part of the first warning, I guess, in a way. Abraham replies, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Now, let's just read that again and put in what we said earlier. Um, so, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while the one who believed that God is his help received bad things. See how that changes the way we think about it? 
He was believing that back there, and you weren't believing that back there, is what Abraham is saying. But now he's comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. That last little bit is some of the most horrific language, I think, in the whole of the Bible. It is just impassable. The chasm between the two is impassable. Love, I love, uh, I, I like a bit of hill walking, and I love watching mountaineering programs. That's my level. And sometimes you see some of the climbs that they make. They're climbing up some amazing face, and over on the other side is another face, and there's this enormous, impassable chasm between the two mountains. There is no way that you could get from there to there. If you tried to get from one side to the other, you would die. That's the perspective that Jesus is placing in terms of the, the separation of our eternal destinies. Warning two. Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place in torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Warning number two is kind of, we're going to drift into a final application, which is a continuation of the warning, but it's basically this. Voices from the past are the opportunity for us to learn in the present. In other words, Abraham is saying, is, look, <laughs> look, they have had all necessary provision. Everything necessary for them has already been made. They have had exactly the same voices that Lazarus had. The one who believed in God had those voices. The wo those who don't believe in God also have those voices. Therefore, why would, why would we make this sort of strange, bizarre exception for this particular group of brothers, five of them, in this little family? Why would we make an, an extreme provision? There is ample provision. He goes on to say something which is some of the most amazing words that Jesus says in this little story. He says, no, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone goes, this is the, the rich man speaking to Abraham, he says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. That just bounces us straight back to Scrooge, doesn't it? Uh, Scrooge, who's there in his freezing cold mansion with Jacob Marley rattling the chains, someone from the dead coming back to warn him, does he listen? No. He shuts out the ghosts, and it takes the ghost of Christmas past, present and future. That's not a spoiler, because we should all know the story by now. He, he doesn't listen. In other words, even our own story writers are saying, we don't listen, because we're intent on our own decisions, 
Our own ideas are more important than the voices from the past. Even if somebody comes from the dead, we won't listen. And he said to them, this is Abraham replying, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, I want you to place yourselves for a moment. We don't know where, but we're guessing it's somewhere fairly, fairly salubrious in the Greco-Roman world. Your name right at this moment is Theophilus, and you're reading this letter which is talking about Jesus from your friend Luke. And Jesus says in this story, as you read it, and they won't believe even if someone is raised from the dead. Where does your mind go? Straight away. It goes straight away to exactly what you've been taught about Jesus. That's where your mind goes. I hope that's where our minds go. I really pray that when we read this little section, that's where our minds go straight away, because that is exactly what Jesus is saying at this moment in time. He's using this incredible linguistic tool to both tell a story and to describe in prophetic terms exactly what is going to happen regarding Him. I'm going to rise from the dead, and they still will not believe. That is the key issue. In fact, that line is the number one moment for us to engage in this story. Because we kind of sit where the five brothers sat. We've got all of these voices from the past, but we've got more voices than them because we've got the voices that tell us about Jesus. We've got the voices that tell us about someone who came back from the dead who rose again to tell us something. What was he telling us? He wasn't telling us, I've been to that Hades place, whatever you do, don't go there. He was telling us, if you trust in me, I will give you life. That's what he's telling us when he comes back from the dead. That's amazing. What an incredible story that Jesus tells here. We live in a day which rejects someone who rose from the dead. Isn't that amazing? It's exactly as Jesus said would happen. Even if someone's raised from the dead, they won't believe. The critical piece of information for us is that He speaks to us. And He calls us to place ourselves in figurative terms, either as a rich man or as a Lazarus, where do we place ourselves in that story? Are we living in this world, and the rich man is there as a kind of crass, stark representation to say there is a danger that you can live relying on your own ingenuity, relying on your own strength, relying on your own capabilities, but the reality is that that will not help you in eternal terms. Or are you living saying, God is my help? And then it really doesn't matter in one sense what happens in this world. 
because the eternal dimension is secured. Paul put it like this, we'll close with this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18, he says this, it's almost as though you could say, this is exactly how Lazarus lived day, day by day. Paul says this, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen. It's like Lazarus, you can see this mess, you can feel yourself trying to get up and you can see one of the dogs walking around the corner, coming up to lick you the wounds on your arm. That is what his situation is. And he says, our eyes are not fixed on what is seen, but what is unseen. Because what is not seen in Lazarus is faith in God. That's not seen. In fact, the culture would say it didn't exist. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Lazarus, the dogs are not going to last forever. You're going to be raised, you're going to be healed, you're going to be fed, you're going to be clothed with righteousness, you're going to be enjoying eternal security and hope. The dogs are not going to last forever. Lazarus. Why? Because you are Lazarus. (laughs) Because you are saying, God is my help.